It's Wednesday evening, so it's time for Midweek Media Watch and Colin Peacock live in studio in shorts too, Colin. In shorts, absolutely. It's it's not the winter yet. I'm going to stick it out for a few more months if I can. I hope you like my shirt. Yeah, yeah. it's nice. It's um, I'll call it Hawaiian, but that's not. It's more summery. Let's put it that way. I walked past a couple going to have brunch with a friend this morning and I didn't know who the couple was on the way down there and I noticed he had sunglasses and he said that's a bright shirt and I just turned around and said thank heavens you're wearing sunglasses <laughs> well, my shorts your shirt I think we're both pretending it's still summer <laughs> well let's start with the BBC Colin BBC and UK government versus Lineker Yes, that's right. Uh, amazing, isn't it, to think you know, the biggest broadcaster in the world in a state of uh, crisis for the best part of a week over you know simply a football presenter, you know, getting on the social media. So just to recap, so it started with yes, Gary Lineker, former England striker and almost its record goal scorer, um, tweeting critically about government policy on immigration. This became a full blown controversy over the BBC's commitment to its uh, cornerstone values of impartiality. Um, it resulted in last weekend the BBC's sports coverage on television and radio being effectively um, wiped out uh, because most of the sports presenters and pundits and commentators in sympathy with Lineker uh, said they wouldn't participate in their programmes. So this, in the end, um, undermined some of the BBC's most senior executives, its chair, its uh, its director-general, who aren't out of the woods yet, I believe, or maybe we'll get to that later, but effectively they had to cave in and announce yesterday that Gary Lineker will now be back on the air, and he has not had to apologise for or back down from his political tweets. Um, and it, it does take me back to, I lived in the UK for a number of years uh, from the mid-90s onwards and ended up working at, at BBC News. And back then, Lineker was a just-retired footballer and they were just beginning to introduce him as a pundit and a commentator. And he was terrible. He was really bad. They really had to help him along. So if you told me then that this guy's personal views, uh, political views uh, at that would end up all these years later threatening to bring down the top brass of the BBC for about a week. I just would not have believed you. What would have happened, for example, if it, say, happened here at RNZ? Well, we do have social media policies as well. Um, so, yes, we certainly do have that requirement. But the complication is Lineker is a uh, not an employee of the BBC. That's part of the problem. So he's their highest paid presenter. So I guess they figure they have some hold over him. But, I mean, his problem was that this was a, a definitely a political viewpoint that he expressed. So when uh, the British Home Secretary put out a video message describing their new hardline stance on uh, asylum, immigration, and what, what's been called the small boats policy, it's specifically for people arriving by sea in the UK, he said, uh, I mean, the, the, the big problem was that he, he compared the language he used uh, to the language being used by the UK government now to 1930s Germany. So that was sort of shorthanded by the press, particularly the tabloid press, as Lineker's Nazi tweet. So the Home Secretary herself responded to that, uh, Suella Braverman, by saying, equating our measures, which are lawful, necessarily, and uh, sorry, lawful and necessary and fundamentally compassionate to 1930s Germany is irresponsible. And even some opposition politicians, Labour politicians, who would have been enjoying 
the Conservative government's discomfort over this, were often saying, look, I think Linnica went a bit too far there. So, you know, that reference to the 1930s in Germany uh, was too much for a lot of other people. But um, one comment I thought hit the nail on the head a bit here in New Zealand was James Elliott. He's a lawyer who also works and contributes to the the newsroom site. Uh, He observed on Twitter, which is, of course, where this saga started, uh, taking Gary Lineker off the air for saying that the language used by the British government is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s is itself not dissimilar to what would have happened in Germany in the the 30s. Uh, So a lot of people thought uh, it was off-key to make that reference to Germany at that time. And... um, the BBC said it was really that that meant that he'd breached their social media guidelines. They then said he'd step back from presenting Match of the Day, but Lineker himself never said he would and objected to that. And from there, it snowballed into this boycott, um, which left people criticising the BBC because it looked as though they were trying to shut down actual criticism of the Conservative government, you know, the hand that feeds the BBC. So that just elevated the problem to the top ranks of, of, of the, the world's biggest broadcaster. So Gary Lineker, basically, he's won. The BBC boss has lost. Yes, I think so. One, one nil Lineker. Um, but uh, one author, I thought, summed this up beautifully on, on Twitter. Uh, so this is, this is his summary in one tweet. Those BBC negotiations in full to get Lineker back on here. Uh, Gary, delete those tweets. Gary says, no. Okay, well, apologise for them. No. Gary, we'll get someone else to do your job if you don't. And then everybody downs tools. Gary, will you at least promise not to tweet political stuff in the future? No. Okay, then we have a deal. Uh, So I think that's a pretty decent um, summary in in one tweet. So well done, Nick Pettigrew. Mm. So whether the guidelines apply to Gary Lineker has been hotly disputed, hasn't it? Yes, and this is still an unresolved matter. So BBC News staff are expressly barred from expressing uh, political opinions, also people who work in, in current affairs. Uh, but Lineker technically is self-employed. He presents football for other broadcasters as well, so he's a hired gun, and in fact the uh, the best paid hired gun at the BBC in, in any area. Um, so in its updated guidelines uh, two years ago, the BBC said that presenters who have what they call a significant public profile had a responsibility to avoid taking sides on party political issues or political controversies. So some people looked at that and said, well, the BBC have a case there to say, you are identified with this broadcaster that does have to be impartial. Your tweet there uh, was overtly political and inappropriate. But those guidelines also, when you dig into them, it's a very big document. Um, They also draw a distinction between presenters in news and current affairs and those in sport and entertainment, where, and it explicitly says this, the risk of compromising the BBC's impartiality is lower. So in the end, the question is really, would Lineker, uh, could he reasonably be considered to represent the BBC or its values? And of course, other people have pointed out, and anyone who's followed the story uh, over the last few days will know that critics of the BBC and supporters of Lineker have pointed to other other people. For example, um, Lord Alan Sugar plays the Donald Trump role and has for, I think, 18 years on the BBC's version of The Apprentice, you know. Uh, And he, at times, has done absolutely flat-out political tweets urging people, in fact, before the last general election, don't vote for the Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, you know, in opposition to the Conservatives, expressly said that. Uh, People have also hauled out, I think, some image that he put on social media which um, sort of photoshopped Jeremy Corbyn in alongside Hitler. So 
if 1930s and later Germany is a bit of an issue in political tweets, that was clearly in breach. So the BBC have not applied this um, fully. Also, Jeremy Clarkson for years was the host of Top Gear, not associated with um, the BBC anymore, I think. But uh, in that time, he had put out comments saying that striking public sector workers should be shot. Um, so this was held not to be in breach or no one raised an issue about it. So, yeah, it leads to that perception that the BBC's top brass were really worried about what the government would think of one of their presenters uh, saying things about them. So the fact that sports shows were knocked off the air or they had no commentators or whatever, was that what forced the settlement rather than the principles of impartiality and freedom of expression? <laughs> I, I think it must have had something to do with it. It's clearly untenable, isn't it? If you've got providing a service to the, uh, the licence fee paying public of Great Britain and also selling those programmes abroad as well, and you've got coverage that's just effectively hopeless. Uh, so, for example, I mean, I, I have a bit of a personal interest actually in this, Todd, because um, in my time there, I worked at uh, Five Live, one of the BBC's network, which covers news and sport 24-7. So the weekends are huge and the sports programs are really lively, starting in the morning with uh, build-up and commentary. And um, they're, they're great programs. It's very listenable, even for people not that much into sport or a range of sport. And I tuned in to the morning hours at night time here just to see how they were handling this and it was awful they were playing old podcasts pre-recorded ancient stuff and like anyone uh, who was religiously tuning into that station would have just not stuck with that there's no way and Gary Lineker's own show that match of the day thing it, it screens at about 10.30 on a Saturday night so the afternoon matches have been played they go through the evening's entertainment on, on their most watched channel BBC One then present uh, it's an excellent Really well done summary of what's happened with analysis and graphics and little stories. Really well done. Last weekend, it was just hopeless. They just called it something generic like football highlights program or something. And all they could do was play 20 minutes of footage from the various games. No commentary whatsoever because they had no rights to use anyone else's commentary. So just a bit of crowd noise over pictures. In fact, The Guardian called it... um, Something like, uh, yeah, they call it scab match of the day. Without Lineker, this is just 20 minutes of shameful, joyless TV. So I don't think the BBC could have let it go on for uh, another week like that. So when all said and done, really, it seems weird that with everything that's going on in the UK and everywhere at the moment, Lineker should be a lead story in the news there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So uh, former newspaper editor and BBC politics show presenter Andrew Maher, was certainly one of those people. He's now uh, gone to commercial media. He's on a talk station called LBC. And this uh, was how he summed that up last weekend. There are some days when I just honestly have to throw up my hands and confess I don't understand anymore. I don't get it. Most of the media seems utterly gripped by whether or not a sports commentator should have tweeted something rude about the government, rather than by the effect of, for instance, the new migration policy or human slavery or little things like whether or not we're really going to get economic growth to the point where we can actually pay food and energy bills. Piddling stuff by comparison, I know, with saint or sinner Gary Lineker. It just seems to me that the news has taken leave of its senses. (laughs) Lots of people would agree. Yeah, they certainly did. People were making the point that actually, look, the news bulletins should be about this government policy on immigration, the thing that uh, you know energised Gary Lineker, and not on Gary Lineker's reaction. But uh, certainly the whole thing got so big that that's exactly what happened. Some people said, look, this would actually suit 
the current UK government down to the ground, deflecting attention away from that policy, which is highly controversial. Uh, but look, Andrew Marr, I mean, he sounded like a bit of a, uh, sounds mean, but a bit, of, bit pompous and a bit, um, a bit, elderly there even he's quite an animated animated guy he sounded like a bit of an old duffer I think but he understands perfectly well why that story is much bigger than just you know football star turned TV host has a pop at the government and this was a controversial thing for a start the football in the UK is huge it's an industry uh, the controversy around it often drags it into the political realm. It's happened before. Um, it's also multinational and multi-ethnic. So previously, English football had huge problems. It's breeding ground for the far right uh, and nationalism and so on. There are still elements of that. But as a product, that English Premier League has a really anti-racist brand and, and leaning. So the Conservatives, I think, in reacting against Lineker and, and the BBC in, in you know uh, taking the action they did that really wasn't warranted or consistent with uh, other decisions they've made or not made in the past, I think they underestimated that, misread that. Um, So Andrew Marr knows all that, and he would also know the politics surrounding the BBC are always there in the background in in the UK. It's it's value to the nation, um, the the fact people have to pay for it, whether they like it or not, if they've got a TV or radio in the house, that's always a hot topic. So Andrew Marr knows all of this. Uh, Add to that the news stories in the background that the chair of the BBC had donated money to the Conservative Party and also helped in some way allegedly facilitate a loan of uh, about a million and a half New Zealand dollars for Boris Johnson himself. These two things are still kind of under investigation and a reason why Richard Sharp, the chair, hasn't been able to comment on any of this stuff. So um, for all of that, a really good summary of this. Uh, I think this is a brilliant bit of broadcasting, uh, if, we, if we could uh, listen into this. It is a bit long. It's about a minute and a half or more. But um, this is Sky Sports News UK's correspondent, Kave Solikol, summing it up. Um, and I think this is his, just his reaction. This was after Lineker's suspension was announced. And this is his immediate reaction as to understanding the hole that the BBC's top bosses had found themselves in. But a lot of people are looking at this and saying, how come Andrew Neil, uh, one of the most high-profile political journalists and interviewers uh, on the BBC for many, many years, how come he is allowed to be the chairman of a right-wing magazine, The Spectator? How come he is allowed to express political opinions on Twitter as much as he wants? How come the chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, the chairman, is somebody who donated £400,000 to the Conservative Party? someone who has helped arrange an £800,000 loan for the former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson? How come Robbie Gibb, or as we have to call him, Sir Robbie Gibb, who used to be the communications director for the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, how come he's on the BBC board at the moment? Why is Alan Sugar allowed to say what he wants on Twitter about political matters? Uh, What about Jeremy Clarkson? He's got a column in The Sun, He's got a column in the Sunday Times. He was on the BBC. He frequently expressed uh, political opinions, which many people think are extreme, on social media. And why is the Director General of the BBC, Tim Davey, the Director General? He used to be the Deputy Chairman of the Hammersmith and Fulham Conservative Party. He's a man who's stood as a candidate in local elections for the Conservative Party. So why is all this allowed, yet Gary Lineker is not allowed to make a fairly innocuous comment which many, many people would agree with about 
a policy that has been condemned by the United Nations and also by many human rights groups. It's quite a summary there, Colin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all that was at his fingertips. So if you were one of the bosses of the BBC that made this, mishandled this decision, you'd be sitting there listening to that over a minute and a half thinking, oh dear, that's that's such a checklist of things they have not fully considered. Uh, so yeah, very impressive bit of broadcasting. But there's another point he raised, and I talked about this with um, Karen on Midweek Media Watch back before uh, the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, which was held in Qatar last December. Uh, because Gary Lineker was the front man for the BBC on that. And there were, of course, big controversies in the background. This was an exercise in kind of sports washing and, you know, making Qatar look good by holding this prestigious tournament. We know that a lot of workers uh, had been uh, exploited, uh, many lives were lost actually building the stadium, serious issues. And there's a big debate about will countries broadcasting this uh, entertainment, this football, mention this kind of awkward stuff in the background. Now, the front guy for that was Gary Lanka, and he was the guy the BBC trusted to actually run this line in their sports coverage and explain it to the British people. I've got a clip here. This isn't a news podcast uh, just before that World Cup. It's November last year. Gary Lanka explaining uh, to the host, Emily Maitlis, how he was working with the BBC to work out how they would explain this context to viewers. You that's will already be. been. Yeah, we'll be talking about them, and that's that's the whole thing that we're going through at the moment. Is you know, is how do we do that? We've got the opening game, and I'm sure we'll discuss the issues of of human rights, of homophobia, of the problems with the stadiums, and the lives lost in in workers' rights, etc. I mean, the Guardian uh, we'll put we'll, that I think at yeah. up to six and a half thousand migrant workers' lives lost. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact number, and I think factually that there are that there's a debate to be had on the actual number yeah. but it's obviously a, a staggering amount and it's it's awful it's awful but yes we will be obviously covering that yeah so there there it is he was the guy they got to explain that so people are saying well how can you now censure him for commenting on a human rights issue that just happens to involve the uk and the ruling conservative government there it's just it's just silly and so people are looking at that and thinking that the bbc governors here must be operating in fear of the government or even worse because of those conservative links of some of the top brass as we we heard in that previous audio there from the the bloke from sky news uh that they're actually got their own uh political motives working here which is worse because that compromises the bbc's independence much more than um you know gary lineker uh, not being political, uh, politically impartial. So all that stuff will still have to be worked through. It doesn't go away just because, uh, you know, Lineker's back on the air. So on social media, a lot of people say, you know, these are my personal views, not those of the people who employ me. The BBC could have pointed to its own social rules and basically said there are grey areas, obviously, and they'd take a look at whether those needed to change. So wouldn't that have diffused it all straight away? <laughs> yeah, I really think it would. It should have been. That's simple. And in fact, that's what the BBC have done in the end. They say, look, we're going to review this now. It's obvious there are problems. Um, so that's what they'll do. So, yeah, that that, that will happen. But uh, it, that could have happened so early on. I mean, that's I guess that's where this becomes an issue that goes beyond just sport or people who don't care about Gary Lineker or football or even the British government. Biggest broadcaster in the world, the people running it, have to make all sorts of fine judgments about what it does. And this just showed that they have made a lot of the wrong judgments and also now set themselves an impossible standard on impartiality to maintain. And actually on that, Andrew Marr, um, who we heard from earlier and I insulted a bit by calling him a 
bit of an old up, but he summed it up very well as well. Uh, this is this is actually before the BBC had, had caved into Lineker, but uh, this is what he said about the boss's uh, predicament. But it can't just sack him for bias, because next everyone would turn to the small issue again of its own chairman being so closely connected to the Tory party in general and Boris Johnson in particular. I did mention at the time that I thought the Richard Sharp business was a problem. But the BBC can't effectively discipline Lineker either because he refuses to be effectively disciplined. I'm afraid, and I say this as a grateful former BBC employee who admires the corporation but left to get his own voice back, that the BBC is well and truly stuffed over this one. <laughs> so they've settled it for now, but yeah, I think he's right. They are a bit stuffed, and someone is going to get the uh, the terrible but possibly quite well paid job of now having to review those social media policies and those grey areas for for the BBC staff and the contractors and the hired and talent uh, the, the the people of, the, like Lineker uh, who who they have to hire and to present those shows. So uh, and all that stuff about the BBC's governors and so on and their possible conflicts and ties to the Tories will have to be dealt with too. So yeah, watch this space, I guess. So, Colin, sticking with football for a moment, a radio news bulletin about New Zealand's own elite football club caught your ear. Yeah, sorry. Bit of a switch of topics here, but yeah, I just happened to hear this on, I think, Sunday. The Phoenix scored a precious win in the A-League against uh, Sydney FC, uh, 1-0. And this is how ZB's um, sports bulletin reported that shortly after. The Wellington Phoenix team player of the day against Sydney FC at Eden Park is Oscar Zavada's pregnant wife. Because she did not go into labour pre-match, the Polish striker has been able to play and, crucially, scored the winning goal in the Phoenix's 1-0 win. (laughs) So I'm taking a wild guess, Todd, and I'm thinking that probably was written by a bloke, that particular part of the bulletin. (laughs) Um, But I I should be fair to ZB, though, because... um, the Phoenix coach actually said it, I think, to reporters after the in a press conference. He did a shout out to Patricia Zavada, who has a name that ZB clearly didn't know, uh, and he said, "You know, thanks to her for holding on to the baby, so that the star striker Oscar Zavada could play and get that winning goal." So that probably gave him the idea. And also, um, ZB did on that same day give really good coverage to the Phoenix women, who also beat Sydney and that was a landmark win for them because they've struggled this season so uh, that was given due prominence so yeah well done to ZB on that. Right last weekend there was a pretty striking cover story in the Herald the Herald on Sunday which upset some people Colin. Yeah it was a confronting one the headline on this was um, poor Magasiba's final hours Um, this is about uh, the actor uh, best known for Shortland Street but also Power Rangers back in the day Um, it began like this. I'll just read the first few lines. After four years, uh, sorry, almost four years after poor Magasiba's death, a coroner's findings revealed the tragic final moments and past traumas. The much-loved actor had been battling personal demons since his childhood and used alcohol as a coping mechanism for his anger, a coroner has revealed. Well, reporting suicide and self-inflicted deaths long been contentious hasn't it for yeah. the media for years they've pushed back against restrictions and coroner's rules that have prevented them from basically revealing what they know about such cases or even reporting them as a suicide yeah that's right without the express permission of coroner they couldn't do that they felt that was unduly restrictive and prevented you know full discussion of you know a social issue that really shouldn't be hidden however um you know this has to be done responsibly so that that's a long running argument but look in this case um poor magasiva's death was four years ago um it had been all the way through that coronial process um and the details had been 
released to the Herald. So in theory, this is the point where the Herald should be able to publish all the details uh, the coronet has been made public. Um, and in this case also, um, Paul Magasiva's former partner had already a couple of years back spoken out, chosen uh, to speak out about um, her former husband's abusive behaviour, uh, his use of alcohol, his mental health problems, all of which are also now in the, that coroner's report. So with all that in mind, why have some people objected to the Herald running the story? Now the coroner's released it. It's in the public interest to know the full facts, isn't it? Y- yes, it is. And, and that's they have absolutely stuck to the rules in, in this instance. But some people just felt like the detail was too much. I mean, there was a lot of detail in the coroner's report and the newspaper carried it all. Some people just instinctively feel it's not really anyone's business now outside the family, seeing as it has already been fairly well canvassed and also court appearances that were result of um, violence and so on. Uh, that's all been reported too. But I see it a bit differently. I mean, this is the point where there is genuine public interest in the issue um, and the full details here can be explained. But the, the problem really is um, with, with the Herald on Sunday's uh, handling of the story was the prominence. So the guidelines for reporting suicide, which, which the media have signed up to, uh, they're warning it's various things like glamorising it or presenting a suicide as a kind of logical response to someone's hopeless situation. Um, but most relevant in this case is uh, they worry about media kind of giving it a big billing, like kind of confronting people with it. So in addition to the Coroner's Act of 2006 and the requirements of that, uh, the guidelines say don't use sensational headlines, avoid using um, language that presents suicide as inevitable or simplifies the reasons for it um, or, or trivialises or romanticises it or anything like that. So the problem here, the Herald's front page filled with a kind of showbiz portrait of Magasiva. Um, that picture was repeated on page 10 where the rest of the story appeared and uh, detailed all the coroner's findings. But when that story appeared on the homepage, and this is what a lot of people saw online and on social media feeds, um, under that tragic final hours headline, the subheading read, TV star uh, Puat Magasiva's final moments before he killed himself. And that's pretty stark. And that's what um, the guidelines really are seeking to prevent. And they later changed that, I noted, to... Um, popular actor had extensive history of accumulated grief and trust issues, which is less stark. But, um, yeah, possibly um, some people were pretty alarmed by what they saw and, and reacted against that. Media win one and loses one. Yeah, a few decisions out from the print media watchdog, the Media Council. Um, so the first was the Sunday Star Times had one upheld against it. And this was unusual. It was a, an article in August before the local elections headlined the COVID-19 conspiracy theorists targeting Northland's local elections uh, and stuff identified a bunch of candidates for an outfit called uh, Sovereign uh, standing under this banner for the Far North District Council. Um, Now stuff said they espoused conspiracy theories and COVID-19 misinformation and uh, shared many characteristics with anti-vax, anti-mandate group voices for freedom uh, and that they appeared influenced by the sovereign citizen movement in the US, these people that consider themselves um, you know, outside of federal government jurisdiction and, and just U.S. law in general in some cases. And uh, the odd thing, though, is the, in September, the Media Council didn't uphold uh, a similar complaint about the same article, uh, but upheld this one. So who complained this time and why did they succeed? Well, this time the complainant was one of those 
eight candidates under that sovereign banner standing for Mayor uh, Joshua Riley. Uh, he said he never heard of that sovereign citizen group in the US. Uh, they didn't have anti-vaccine or anti-mandate policies because that was just out of the scope of local government, according to them, and that they didn't uh, rail against climate change or reject, uh, but they did reject the government's zero carbon policy. So he said stuff only included part of his written responses to their questions, and he reckoned they relied on other people's criticism uh, or assessment of what Sovereign stood for. But the real problem was that the opinions about vaccines, uh, as he put in his complaint, only came from a couple of those candidates uh, and one in particular in his candidate statement. So he said the group was effectively misrepresented, implying that all of these candidates were conspiracy theorists and his, uh, his full answers weren't uh, allowed to make that clear. So um, he complained the headline, COVID-19 conspiracy theorists targeting Northland's local elections, just reinforced that. So what did the papers publish stuff say about it? Well, they reckoned it was fair and accurate and that people would draw the right conclusions from what they said and that they did fairly deal with uh, Mr Riley's written responses and in the end the Media Council did uh, agree that that was the case. Um, but uh, stuff said um, that was contra- there were statements on Sovereign's own website uh, that contradicted what Mr Riley had said in his defence of the complaint. Um, but stuff said, look, the public would make the assumption that these views were included in some of the candidates' statements, uh, so that it would be reasonable to conclude that the sovereign group endorsed them or, at the very least, didn't oppose them. So what did the council say stuff did wrong? Well, in the end, they said, look, you didn't provide enough evidence that all of these eight candidates espoused conspiracy theories. They were all named, and I think their pictures were run in the story. Uh, there was also stuff about the anti-United Nations Agenda 2030 goals, and they said you didn't provide enough detail about this group's stance on that. And uh, they implied, uh, the council said, that all these candidates held the same views on vaccines but didn't lay out the evidence to prove that. Um, so that was really the problem. They said they just didn't provide any evidence at all, really, that this uh, US sovereign citizens movement was anything to do with them, and that was insufficient to justify that headline uh, that they ran on the story. What's the moral of the story in the end then, Colin? <laughs> well, you do have to be careful when you identify specific candidates allied to a movement or group. If there's no specific manifesto that they've all signed up to, you can't ascribe the statements of some to the whole group, I guess. So that's the problem. But the Media Council did make a point of saying investigative journalism about local elections is an essential part of the democratic process and is to be encouraged. And what's the Media Council's decision about local politics where the complaint failed? Yeah, so this is the other one, the the one one lost one. The Gisborne Herald, they faced a complaint from the Gisborne District Council, which said, look, the Herald is the only paper in the Tairawhiti region, and they said its uh, coverage perpetuates ongoing negativity through an imbalance in reporting, and they cited three stories they said were evidence of a, a lack of balance and fairness. What was the verdict there? Well, the council said, no, uh, the Herald appears to be doing a normal job in its coverage of the council, giving a voice to public concerns, and uh, that's the job of a free news media. And it said, uh, they note, that it's the dominant print media source in the region, uh, and it has a particular responsibility, and it said the council welcomes the editor's commitment to get things right and its willingness to keep communication open with the Gisborne District Council in support of that goal. So yeah, in the end, it's unusual that uh, a council would complain as a body about a bunch of stories rather than uh, you know necessarily just specific ones on their own. But yeah, one for the fourth estate there and possibly uh, Gisborne District Council will have to reconsider its uh, media relations stance with uh, its local paper.